Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My episode today is from the blockchain panel that I moderated at Thrival 2017. The Innovation Festival is fast becoming a major cultural event for the city of Pittsburgh. If you missed it, you were in luck. I was able to get this audio and share it to you. It actually just happened this afternoon, and I'm recording this intro and and posting it this evening. Uh, We talk with three brilliant creators in the blockchain industry. The first is my good friend Joe Bender of Consensus. He's a decentralization engineer there focused on building the decentralized applications or dApps that will shape the future of the Ethereum network. If you want a little bit more context there, head on over to episode 159 with Joe Lubin, the co-founder of Ethereum and Consensus. We also had Chris Wilmer, an associate professor of chemistry at the University of Pittsburgh, who wrote Bitcoin for the Befuddled and was an early adopter of the technology. He's also co-founded Ledger, which is the first ever peer-reviewed journal for research in the world of blockchain and the study of this computer science technology. Chris is another person who is really moving things forward. And finally, Tom Marnick is doing the same over at Ansys. His company is focused on building simulation software for other engineering firms to test out their prototypes. And he is particularly enthralled with how the blockchain can transform product management and the large logistics and supply chains that go into major engineering projects. I know you're going to learn a lot from this conversation because I did. The audience, unfortunately, I I wish we had more time to give them to answer all of their questions, but we did a pretty good job here. I think that you're really going to enjoy it. So here's my conversation with Joe Bender, Chris Wilmer, and Tom Marnick at Thrival 2017. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Um, so, really excited to be talking to everyone today about blockchain technology. Before we get into introducing further and talking with our amazing panel, I want to get a quick temperature of the room, uh, just so I know what we're working with. Uh, when I say if when I say blockchain, you say what is that? Please raise your hand. That's actually better than I expected. Okay, um, raise your hand if you've heard of Bitcoin. All right, keep them raised or raise your hand if you've heard of Ethereum. And now raise your hand if you own a digital asset or a cryptocurrency. All right, cool. So uh, we'll breeze or we're going to start off at a really one-on-one level. Just make sure everyone's caught up to speed, and then get into some conversations around how the uh, blockchain technology is going to disrupt a number of industries in the near future. Uh, But to start things off, just to introduce our panel in a little bit more detail, I want to start off with Joe talking a little bit about what Consensus is and what you're doing there. Hi, everyone. My name is Joe Bender. Um, I work for a company called Consensus Systems in New York. We are a blockchain incubator studio um, where We are looking at different ventures in the blockchain space, looking to give them support um, to help aid with success in such a tumultuous market as the blockchain industry. Um, We do everything from looking at new ventures to education. We have Consensus Academy, which 140 blockchain developers are about to graduate from. 
We do government and uh, private consulting, um, look at, looking to set up uh, private blockchains for corporations and banks, and also consulting with governments. Um, our CEO, Joe Lubin, just met with the island of Mauritius to maybe convert their entire um, identity system onto the blockchain, get rid of all that uh, paper stuff and, and get it on the internet. And we are also producing a lot of products in-house, um, decentralized applications, also known as dApps, um, to kind of give uh, the Ethereum blockchain uses and things for uh, people to do with it. Awesome. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about Ledger and how you got that started? Sure. Hello? Hello. My name is Chris Wilmer. I got involved with uh, Bitcoin initially in 2011 when they were $3 um, to buy some chocolates online because I read somewhere that you could do that and then fell deep down the rabbit hole. And uh, I joined the University of Pittsburgh in 2014, which was the same year that Ledger, the first scholarly peer-reviewed journal for uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain research was founded. Um, so that's been about three years uh, that we've been running and we have two years of, issue, of uh, papers published. And um, so what else to say? I guess that's the, 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 the super quick intro. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, Tom, you want to talk quickly about what you're doing at ANSYS? So uh, if you had any you know, questions about how new blockchain technology is, all you have to do is look at the panel here. Uh, I've actually, my, my career is in uh, engineering software. So I've worked for companies that make the software that the companies that make the products that we use every day design and manufacture. Okay? So ANSYS uh, has been in business for 40 years and ANSYS's role in engineering software is to create simulation software. So anything that can be physically tested in the real world can also be simulated with digital models in the cyber world. And that's essentially what we do at ANSYS. Awesome. Uh, so to start things off at a one-on-one -on -one level, I want to have Chris talk just about what blockchain is, um, why it is perhaps a better security uh, or a more secure way of tracking assets and tracking value, and how you came to understand that. OK. So what blockchain is is a, is a hard thing to explain very briefly. But it is a highly decentralized, distributed uh, database that is uh, tamper-proof. And you know, I think we'll all probably touch on various aspects of that, but it has a lot of advantages when it comes to secure storage of information. And, and security itself, there are a lot of aspects to it, but to sort of focus on two, one is reliability, and another one is preventing unauthorized access. So here, blockchain technology you know, offers some really unique and sort of step change advantages. So first of all, in terms of reliability, because it's, precisely because it's fundamentally de decentralized, there are no companies involved, um, there are no central points of failure. So like the internet as a whole, it has 100% uptime. Um, it can never be deleted. Um, it can never just, uh, just disappear. And so in terms of your information, always being there and that you can rely on that, blockchain technology is sort of without part. There's no information that was added to the Bitcoin blockchain you know, since its inception has ever been lost and, and likely never will be, no matter how hard people may try to you know, delete any of it. Another aspect is unauthorized access. So it's, it's a weakness security-wise if other people can access your data if you don't want them to. 
And here again, blockchain technology is sort of unique because you can, um, it, the details matter a little bit, but in general you can add information to this public distributed database just by virtue of having a private key, which is another way of saying having a password. And what's really unique and sort of different from the sort of layperson's perspective is almost any other application for which you have a password, say logging into your bank, there's at least one other person who can also log into your bank account, and that's the bank. And, but with blockchain technology, with the, with the private key, it really, is, it really can be just you and nobody else. And, and that gives you a sense of confidence, provided that you are careful about that password, that truly nobody else can access your data. For all the other systems we're familiar with, uh, social, you know, Facebook or bank accounts, you have to be careful about your credentials, but you also have to worry that someone else is careful with your credentials. And as we hear, the Equifax hacks, which is only one of the latest of uh, hundreds of such things that have happened over the last several years, we know that that trust is not deserved. And so in, in those two respects, but also in others, the security of blockchain technology is really unique and very powerful. Absolutely. Um, as you can tell from the hands that went up at the beginning, Bitcoin and Ethereum are two of the biggest names, or the, two of the biggest things happening in the space, uh, at least in the popular discussion. So Joe, I want to have you just talk a little bit about the differences between the two um, and what the average person needs to know about them. Okay, so before I start, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum are both on the same side of the decentralization revolution. There is so much tribalism right now in the blockchain community. Everyone thinks that their blockchain is the best. Zcash is doing great things with completely anonymous transactions that Ethereum and Bitcoin do not do. Bitcoin is massive, has so many participants and processes transactions extremely fast. However, Ethereum capitalizes on what Bitcoin started. Um, Bitcoin is merely a store of value. Um, it's a tradable commodity, um, much like uh, bundles of wood or bundles of fish were way back in the day. Um, it is a store of value because people say it has a store of value. Ethereum expands on that a little bit because it is a decentralized protocol and a platform for decentralized applications. Um, this means, much like the apps that you buy in the App Store, run on the Ethereum blockchain, and that is um, what we're building at Consensus, decentralized applications. Now, just that buzzword is a little hard to grasp. When you think about use cases, it gets a little more common sense. Um, there's a company called Ujo Music, which is looking to put music licensing on the blockchain. Right now, uh, Atlantic, Columbia, Virgin own 80% of the music industry. You're either playing in dive bars or you're Beyonce at the Super Bowl making millions of dollars. Um, there needs to be a middle ground for someone to make a living wage off of being a musician or being an artist. Um, therefore, if you were to distribute music on the blockchain, um, you no longer need those massive record labels for licensing and for distribution. You can get your music directly from yourself to the fans. Um, another thing is uh, crowdfunding. We have a, a startup called Wayfund. Um, you put through so much energy to create an idea, create a startup or something. You put it on Kickstarter. Hundreds of thousands of people fund your project. 
and at the very end, Kickstarter takes a big chunk. Why? Because you use their website? That does not seem right. Um, you can do crowdfunding on the blockchain by taking value, Ethereum or Bitcoin, directly from someone. They give it to you, zero fees, zero two to three days transferring from your bank account, and that person um, is receiving value for a good idea from the public. Um, and it's those type of things that are taking power away from these big centralized silos that are keeping your data and being middlemen. We want to strip that all away and make the blockchain um, able to make um, transactions transparent and, and trustworthy. One of the things that makes interpreting the stories and the plans and the startups that are happening in the blockchain space really difficult to navigate from an outsider's perspective is some of the things that get spoken about like that could be five years, 10 years, 15 years away. The same way when we were first experiencing the consumer internet in the 1990s, a lot of the biggest companies haven't come to pass for another decade or more. Um, so with Tom in, in the room with us, I want to talk a little bit about where ANSYS is applying the blockchain technology and also how that isn't necessarily exclusively related to the transfer of value, but other ways that it can be applied to make the workflow of a company more effective. Okay. Uh, first of all, we should probably you know, set expectations correctly that we are not leveraging the blockchain in our products today, right? So even for us, right, it's a long time coming. Hopefully not too long, but it's, it's not immediate, yeah. okay? Um, but what we are interested in doing and what our customers are interested in doing is leveraging the aspects of blockchain that, that uh, my fellow panelists talked about with uh, securing data, right, and distributing data. So I mentioned, you know, the companies that engineer and manufacture the products that we all use every day, right, generate a lot of data. And that data is their IP, right? What makes their products great, what makes us want to use those products and spend money on those products, is the IP that they generate in the design and engineering and manufacturing of those products. It is kind of mind-boggling uh, for people who don't, aren't familiar with engineering and manufacturing how much information is really created and how complicated the process is. Right? But going from you know, the concept phase, when a product is just a, a twinkle in the eye of a designer, to when we're selling it and servicing it in the field and keeping it running, right? there's many, many stages in between. There's many, many different types of disciplines in between. And tons and tons and tons of data documents uh, that are created and through that whole chain of events, right? And this is all complicated information. It's all very valuable. And it's difficult for companies to track it, right? Um, because engineering is a very iterative process. The idea that I have start out with is nothing like what I end up with at the end, necessarily, right? And it's not just that I iterate on it. It's that all the thousands of other people involved in the creation of that product iterate on it as well. And we have to keep track of all that. So we're interested in the blockchain because we believe the blockchain can help with that. There are you know, authorizations that have to happen, sign-offs that have to happen, certifications that have to happen at every step of the way through that uh, product development process. 
And if the blockchain can be used to validate those transactions that occur throughout the development, the engineering and development process, um, you know, that's a very secure and decentralized way to do it. Because today what most companies are doing is trying to centralize all that information into a database. And it's a lot of information. They're a globally distributed enterprise with engineers all over the world contributing to the, to the product development process. And centralized databases can be a bit challenging in that kind of an environment. So we believe the blockchain can help. Absolutely. Chris, you've witnessed numerous iterations on Bitcoin, uh, not only from a technical perspective over the last seven years or so, but also in public perception. I feel like I see every other week, Bitcoin's dead, uh, these cryptocurrencies are dead, and it, it continues to rise and grow. Um, can you talk a little bit about how perceptions have changed, maybe misconceptions that uh, people come to you with, and how you usually talk about those? Right, yeah, great question. So, you know, when I started being interested in Bitcoin, and I got excited and enthusiastic pretty quickly, um, didn't completely understand it right away, which I think is fair, um, I was disappointed by what was you know, widespread skepticism is too weak a word. I mean, most people in 2011, which is sort of where, you know, where I started talking to my, you know, friends about it or reading news articles about it, they hated it. They thought it was a scam or a Ponzi scheme um, or worse. Um, and, um, you know, there was a stigma of being associated with it. And I, and I, and I was disappointed that people weren't more open-minded, but, you know, as, as, as time went on, and I learned more about other new technologies that were developed in prior decades. Um, it was, uh, you know, the resemblance was, was uncanny. And a lot of people know this. I think people who are, you know, older and have you know, seen lots of new technologies come and go, they're very used to these sort of cycles. For me, it was kind of new. And so I think Bitcoin is, is going through, you know, and, and blockchain technology, sort of the generalization of the concept has gone uh, through a very typical perception cycle. Maybe the one thing that's a little different is that because people were able to invest money into it early on, I think that raised people's hairs uh, a little bit more than if it was some other technology where they would have merely said it was stupid as opposed to saying it was a scam. Um, that being said, uh, you know, in 2011, most of the detractors would say it's a Ponzi scheme. Today, there are still lots of detractors of this technology, but I rarely ever see anyone say it's a Ponzi scheme. So it has become more mainstream in that way. I think a lot more people are open to the idea that there's something there, even if they don't get it. And so it's moving along nicely, um, and, and I, it's still not mainstream. Mainstream, that is uh, it's a sort of a blurry line, but probably it'll be another decade before most people are like, oh yeah, this is clearly a good thing. Right, and that makes sense because we are talking about parts of our lives that are very, very intimate. We're talking about what's in our bank account. We're talking about what's on our license, what's on our passport. Um, uh, I, I just wanted to add maybe, maybe one thing to that. Is like, I think a lot of times with new technologies, the, the bafflement is like, well, what problem does this solve? So, you know, with email in the early days, a lot of people were like, well, why don't I just write a letter? Writing a letter is slow. Well, why don't I just call them? And, 
He said, well, you know, email can be better than calling, but you have to disable your phone line, and you have to connect your modem, and, it, you know, it, it, and you have to buy a computer, which you may not have. And, um, you know, today we don't question the importance of that. And, and, and with blockchain technology, I think that's really common for people to not, it's not clear what problems it solves to a lot of people. One of, and, and it's very much revolves around situations where there are issues with trust. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about, is how much the requirement to trust people or organizations hampers us and prevents us from doing things we couldn't otherwise do. And the blockchain removes a lot of that need for that trust. But because most of us don't usually think about that aspect, um, it seems like this you know, complicated, pointless uh, innovation right now to a lot of people, I think. Absolutely, and, and trust is something that builds slowly. It's not gonna happen overnight. Um, but one area, Joe, where I know you're very excited to see us put more trust in the blockchain is around the notion of identity, um, having sovereignty over your personal data, just who you are, um, and, and sharing that information. Can you go a little bit deeper with us on how identity is gonna change when we are placing that on the blockchain? So, I think that the internet happened real quick. Uh, it caught us all off guard, and I think a couple years ago, five, five, six, seven, eight years ago, people were like, oh my gosh, look at Facebook. Our whole lives are on the internet now. It didn't happen unless you took a photo of it and posted it on Facebook and your friends liked it. And the digital identity was almost like trivial and new and exciting. And it's getting real serious real quick. Um, now we are learning that in the future, things will be digital. Things will be peer-to-peer -peer and, and on the internet. And we need to legitimize the structure of maintaining a digital identity. Right now, we all have hundreds of usernames and logins and passwords. We don't know which website has which of our data. Wait, did I enter my social security number on that one website? Um, it's a huge mess and we really wanna clean it up for the public, for the safety of the public. So digital identity is the number one on my list right now for, for exciting um, prospects about the future. Right now, you all have a paper birth certificate. You all have a plastic driver's, driver's license. When you go to a bar, you hand the driver's license to a bouncer, and that bouncer then gets access to your address, your height, your eye color. Why does that bouncer need to know where you live? They only need to know that you are 21. We need a way for people to be in charge of their digital identity and to lease it out selectively to the services that they trust. We talked a lot about Facebook and how data is so important. What, what products, tangible products, do you use from Facebook? None. They don't have any. It's mind-boggling that these uh, companies have this big of a market cap without any tangible products, and that's because data is the newest digital asset. It is the most valuable commodity right now because it tells everything about us. So um, we're working on a product called Uport, which um, is very similar to Snapchat. It has a Snapchat-esque interface and it is in charge of your credentials. You verify in the app your age, your address, um, all of the information that makes you you, and then we want to make uh, an identity-charged super browser where you are browsing the blockchain, but your browser has all of your information. So instead of having to enter 100 different email addresses into all these different websites, you simply pick and choose which aspects of your identity um, a company is allowed to have. Um, and they don't get any more than that. 
Tom, I have a similar question for you just in terms of other areas that are going to be disrupted by this new structure for databases, um, whether that's within ANSYS or just in general when you look at the technology, um, where you get excited. So I think the areas that are going to get disrupted are the areas of centralized databases and that idea of a centralized authority that is, you know, there's an old term uh, in, in my business uh, called single source of truth, right? What's the single source of truth for the data that, that describes what this product is, right? And again, that, that's a big mountain of complex information, right? Because it's not just the picture I drew that described what the product was gonna look like, it's also all the documentation about how you use it, all the manuals about how you maintain it. Um, there's just tons and tons of data that describe what a product is. And because it's constantly iterating and changing over time, um, it becomes very difficult very quickly to figure out which, if I'm looking at a document that supposedly goes with, uh, you know, the caster on this chair that I'm sitting on, you know, it describes that part in some way, how do I know it's the right one? Because in reality, there's probably a hundred different versions of the document that describes this caster. So how do I know I have the right one? Today, I think I have the right one because I got it from a centralized database, the so-called single source of truth, and therefore I believe that it's the right one because my database is the authority that tells me it is, right? But in reality, companies put all kinds of junk in their database and there ends up being, well, there's 10 different variations of this caster. I don't know which one's the right one. But I'm, I found this one and I think it's right, so I'm gonna go with it. And what happens, you know, a lot of the, you know, remember when quality was job one and, and all that stuff, right? A lot of problems with quality in products happen today because they put the wrong part in the wrong place, right? Or they, they use the wrong version of a drawing to manufacture the part that goes in there, right? Or the supplier that they sourced the part from didn't use the right requirements document to define, to build the part, and they end up with the wrong part, right? So where the disruption can come in for, for you know, our industry is in eliminating or reducing the need for these centralized databases and increasing the reliability of the information that people are using to, uh, you know, design and build the products, right? So I can be sure that I have to revise this part, the documentation that I'm starting with is the correct documentation, so when I create the new version, it's gonna be the right part in the right place at the right time, so the, the chances of the quality of that end product uh, being you know, good are, are gonna be even higher, right? Reduce the opportunities for mistakes and failures and things like that. Um, I've only got another question or two left. I want to make sure the audience is prepared to ask questions of these guys. We're going to leave plenty of time for that. Um, so get those ready. But Chris, you have an interesting story when you were very early on in uh, Bitcoin about transferring value in your mind. Like we're, ta we're talking here about removing the institution as a point of failure from with the blockchain, but there's this idea that you can transport a store value in your brain over a border. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and how you did that? Yeah, so there's a fascinating concept um, called a brain wallet. Um, and this was 
uh, I, I, again, so in the early days of, of my learning about Bitcoin, it was something I heard about in 2012, and it just sounded really cool. Somehow it was the idea that you could just store Bitcoins in your mind. Um, and um, so I went through this process where I, you know, I started with an electronic device, and the Bitcoins were on my electronic device, and I followed this process to where the Bitcoins were no longer on my electronic device, they were just in my head. Essentially, I had memorized my Bitcoins. Um, and then I moved them back, you know, following you know, a procedure you know, to, to the device later. And that was like an aha. I was like, that, I was like okay, this really is different. And you know, I, I can't, you know, in, in 20 seconds explain the details of how that works. But it's fascinating in terms of what it means for being able to say cross borders without anybody be able to being able to seize your assets, or if you were to be, you know, imprisoned, you know, you, and then come out and have access to your assets. It's very different, um, and I think it's a great example of how this technology fundamentally lets you do things that you couldn't before. So, um, cross border is absolutely huge. Yeah, um, the remittances industry. People come to this country and work their asses off to get a little bit of money to send home, and then Western Union takes a bunch of it. Imagine having a global decentralized currency. You send it instantly, zero transaction fees, um, back to your family, and they can immediately begin using it in a global decentralized marketplace. Um, Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe wallet. Oh, this is a cheesy joke. What do you call a Zimbabwe wallet? A wheelbarrow. Because inflation got so bad that to go and buy a loaf of bread, you have to fill up your wheelbarrow with your trillion dollar bills and take it down and get a loaf of bread. Um, their government has forsaken them, uh, just printed money, and the inflation rate got uh, a magnitude of, of a really bad magnitude. And um, the inflation rate has ruined their local economy. Imagine if you were a Zimbabwe citizen, um, in the old way, you'd go, oh, I can't leave this country, all my money's tied up in the bank, what am I gonna do? Now you say, I'm gonna take my decentralized currency and get out of here because the government is not treating me the way that I should be treated as a citizen. It's really exciting. I know people in the audience are excited to ask questions. So Kenny is around here somewhere with a microphone. He's going to come to you. We're going to try to get as many as we can. Hi there. Joe, given the amount of stuff that you've already talked about in cryptocurrencies and other current uses of blockchain using a distributed ledger, regardless of those type of business models, which models have you seen in the social impact space for both you and Tom? Social impact space. One of my, um, the most exciting things about social impact right now is disaster relief, um, especially with, with Irma right now. What happens when you have no infrastructure? All of your documents are lost in a flood. You have nothing. Um, there needs to be a way for you to identify who you are. Um, the UN right now is using the Ethereum blockchain to help with disaster relief. You go up to a table that the UN and Red Cross is sponsoring. You tell them your credentialized information from the blockchain. They verify it as you, and you get to receive any um, relief uh, items. Um, someone actually enlightened me to the other end of that. Imagine if you were a doctor in one of these relief areas, but you had none of your documentation at all, and you go up to the relief center and you say, I want to help. I want to start um, helping to heal people and, and put on bandages and, and lift um, construction materials. 
the person would say, I don't know who you are. You're not allowed to operate on these people or help us with medical relief. Using the blockchain, you can verify who you are. It'll say, I'm a doctor. This is my degree on the blockchain. This is other credentials that people have said I have helped them in the past. And just like that, instantly, um, massive social impact change in places that really need it. Hi, guys. <clears throat> my name is Kalani. Anyway, I'm obsessed with blockchain, obsessed with it. I just learned about it recently and I'm just like, I'm all in. I'm actually going to the Ethereum Hackathon in Canada two weeks. I know you, your company will be there, so I'm super excited about that. I guess my question about private chains. So blockchain, the whole like lure of it is that it's supposed to be like this public thing for everybody to have the same access and all of this. So I know these banks are like getting together and doing these private chains and like want to keep the data secret. So like what's the point of that? And I know consensus is like, you know, helping make that a thing. So if you can just explain like why have a private chain. When we're talking about engineering and, you know, product design, a company may want a private chain for their data that describes all of their products, right? And even though, you know, I imagine, and I'm not a blockchain expert by any stretch, especially compared to these guys, but, you know, I imagine that that information would be secure on the public chain because of, you know, hashing and, and the security keys and things like that. You know, sometimes that's not good enough for, for companies, right? And, and, you know, Honeywell, you know, doesn't even want to put data in the cloud, right? So they're not going to be real comfortable having their data on a public blockchain, right? So that's where the private chains come in from my perspective. Yeah, it's kind of the difference between internet and intranet in Web 2.0. True, I am all for the public blockchains. Don't, you don't have to tell me about that. Um, regardless, Ethereum, it's called the, the global computer, the world computer. It's a big, slow computer but it's very trustworthy. However, it does have shortcomings. Um, long block time, um, it takes a while for transactions to go through, but that is the trade-off for having um, transparency. Um, I will say that the innovation in the private blockchain space right now is extremely important. Um, those blockchains are very fast. Um, they don't have tens of thousands of nodes like the public chain. Um, there is a lot of innovation going on in private chains that will eventually help the public chain also. And I will uh, say there are a lot of efforts to connect private and public blockchains, um, such as Polkadot, if anyone's heard of that, um, where a bunch of transactions can happen on a private blockchain and then proof of those transactions can get sent to a public chain um, in a pseudo-verification sense. So, so I'll, be, I'll be the dissenting voice. I, one of the, I, th I think a lot of companies and, and, and banks are included in this, you know, want to explore the technology and, but by default, you know, want to keep things uh, private. It is, um, there is something lost if, you're, if there isn't a trust problem to solve. So if you, if you have a company and, and you're doing everything internally and, you, and you're a central authority and you trust yourself, I would say there's not a lot of reason to use a blockchain. You could, a decent, you could yeah, there are other decentralized database strategies that don't involve blockchains. If there are a set of banks and it's multiple banks that want to interact with each other, they don't quite trust each other, there could be a, a reason for them to use blockchains, but there has to be that lack of trust to motivate the, the, the use for it. 
Okay, so that's... Well, and just to be clear, that lack of trust exists to a certain degree even in private companies, right? Because there's always a supplier network, and it's usually a vast supplier network, and they are participating in the development of your product and supplying, um, you know, physical parts as well as designs and things like that. Okay, fair enough. So, My name is uh, Piyush Seth. Um, I have a question that you may not have the answer to, but what is going to be the Google or Facebook of blockchain technology? This is my favorite question, actually. Um, <laughs> and it touches on, um, on something uh, Tom was talking about, how, uh, how these, these big companies um, have all of our data and just the way the internet progressed. Um, the internet started, you know, kind of like the blockchain, a peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure. And then next thing we know, we flash forward 10 years and these big corporations control everything. Um, something Fred Esrom just said on Bloomberg, we don't know, nobody knows the answer to that. All of the biggest internet companies right now were not around at the advent of the internet. And that's what scared people, you know. Um, the companies were like, why should we use the internet? We have these great retail stores. Like People can come in and walk, walk 20 minutes and buy some clothes. Um, the best uses of the blockchain we have yet to discover, and that is really the most exciting part about it. So, um Rasu Shrest, I'm charged with innovation at UPMC. Um, so two-part question, <laughs> um, maybe one and a half. The first is let's clarify this once and for all, right? Thrival 2017, is it blockchain or is it the blockchain? Because I've heard it <laughs> both ways, even on the panel, right? And everyone's really itching to know. So that's the first part. The second, as a healthcare innovator, what I really want to know is are there real use cases for blockchain in healthcare? the $3.5 trillion industry. Please, want to know your opinions. Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at blockchain or the blockchain. <laughs> These guys can clarify it. But to me, again, being relatively new to this, the way I think about it is blockchain is the technology, the name for this distributed ledger technology, that, you know, the way it works. And the blockchain is the fact that there is this public blockchain out there that everybody could start putting stuff in. Now, I have no idea how you actually go about doing that. You could talk to those guys about that. But, you know, and, and you know, from my perspective, and, and what ANSYS is looking at is more of the private blockchain where we expect our customers are either going to have their own blockchain that we are going to help them work with or they're going to ask us to help them build a private blockchain where this data is going to get stored. And, I, again, I'll, I'll let these guys speak more to the possibilities for healthcare, but from the things that I've been reading, I mean, I think the possibilities for healthcare are amazing um, because just like we talked about the identity, if I could have all of my healthcare records in one secure place just for me, and as I go from doctor to doctor, that doctor, I could, I could enable that doctor to easily access either all of the records or just the records I wanted that doctor to have access to, that's really powerful in my mind. I don't have to, you know, we, we had a health screening at, uh, at work today and I had to go down in the lobby and I had to bring my ID card for, for my benefits in the company that provides me my benefits, right? It, sh it should be easier than that, that's all. I'd say it's blockchain. However, it's the blockchain, if you're talking about your favorite one than the one that you support. <laughs> um, healthcare um, is a messy industry and, and 
so much red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, um, and it is in dire need of transparency and, and trustlessness. Um, there is a really cool initiative right now called HealthCoin, um, which is looking to tokenize your health data. Um, right now, your health data is stored in these big silos, like UPMC's silo, and um, you are not in control of it. And when you think blockchain, think, I want to be in control of my data, and that's what it boils down to. Um, I really like the application of you being in charge of it, being able to lease it out to certain doctors so they can provide you with your healthcare. It doesn't take days for it to ship a big folder of all your past visits. It's, it's all instant. Um, but one of the applications that I am really excited about is research studies. Right now, the research community and healthcare corporations are not working together at all. We could have many, many diseases cured by now if all of the inf healthcare information from everyone on the planet was, was able to be used for research. And it's just not right now. Um, if you were in control of your health data, you could lease it out at a cost to a research facility. Imagine if you were being paid for letting someone use your healthcare information to solve diseases. Um, that's what we're trying to do with the blockchain. Who in here is wearing a Fitbit? Anybody wearing a Fitbit? That data, you have sovereignty over it, you would hope, but Fitbit is also the one collecting it. Imagine leasing that out to a research company and getting paid for that. Let me paint another concrete use case for healthcare application. So imagine uh, you go to a, a, like a local doctor, local physician, and uh, you get diagnosed with, with a condition, okay? And then um, you know, later you sign up for insurance, and then you get sick, and the, and the bill is enormous, $10 million, something insane. So blockchain technology has a couple of advantages, right? But I, I mentioned two, one, it's tamper-proof. Okay, and it deals with trust issues. So in this scenario, with, with a, in a non-blockchain universe, there's a very strong incentive for this person who's sick to quietly go back to that doctor's office, there's a $10 million stake at here, and say, look, I'll share some of this with you if you just erase that I had that condition before. Um, and if it was in a more expensive surgery, the more likely that would happen. I mean, this probably does happen all the time, and we don't know about it. If that um, diagnosis was put on the blockchain and it could be encrypted so that you know not anyone can see it um, insurance companies could trust that for sure it hasn't been tampered with retroactively one use case awesome I think we got one more question yeah. two hi my name is Lynn Ventress my question is about data analytics with distributed databases um, I'm thinking specifically about you know human services for example I could see a lot of benefits to a government human services agency using a, a distributed database to increase the trust that citizens have in terms of sharing information with that organization. However, we've also seen organizations get a lot of benefit from being able to conduct trend analyses across the data in centralized databases um, in order to improve the services they provide to citizens as well. Um, so, you know, it, is that even a tension with this technology? Um, and, and what does that future look like for organizations that can benefit the people whom they serve um, using current models of information storage? That is a very good question. So that's the whole thing, you know, having all this data is useless if you're not analyzing it, learning from it, um, using it to better a product or a service or something. I don't think that 
transitioning to the blockchain means that that isn't possible anymore. And that type of data analytics um, is kind of part of the old paradigm, I think. Um, I guess I get a really negative opinion when I start to think of data analytics. Um, you're talking about the human services industry, but when I, I think about that, I, I think of Facebook analyzing billions of people's of data to make sure that the item you just looked at on Amazon five minutes ago is in your feed. Um, we have all had that moment of then again wanting to buy that product. Um, human services industry, I, I think that it could also go back to what I was talking about before where people now have the ability to lease out their information. The government has a lot of, a lot of data on people. Um, the government is what gives us our birth certificate and what gives us our social security number. So I don't think that they won't have the ability to analyze us anymore in the future. I just think that it will be in a much more metered, just way where they're either paying for that data to analyze or we are directly benefiting from it. And like you said, her human services industry, we are going to benefit from them analyzing us. So, so just to talk briefly about kind of the, the not so scary side about data analytics, you know, we are very much interested in data analytics and do a lot of data analytics because, again, we're about how we're, we simulate how products are going to behave in the real world, right? So that you don't have to build a physical prototype and throw it off the stage to see if it'll break, right? I could do that with a digital model and, and save a lot of time and money, right? Well, anybody heard of the Internet of Things out there? So, there's all kinds of data pouring in from the Internet of Things. So what companies are doing now, and actually have been doing for years, but they're doing it more, is they're putting sensors on the products that they've built. And those sensors are sending boatloads of data back to the mothership about how that product is actually performing in the real world. And we're actually doing things that we can take all of that data, and a couple of interesting things without diverging too much, but. We want to analyze all that data to be predictive about when is that thing going to break, right? And we want to run simulations that say, okay, based on how that thing is behaving right now, based on all this data we just got back, it's going to break in three weeks. So you better get a service tech out there and have him, you know, replace the motor or, or oil the bearing, right, so it doesn't break, whatever that is, right? So data analytics is absolutely critical to that. I don't see the blockchain as being a problem for data analytics. It's just because data analytics tools are really good at collecting data from all over the place and then analyzing it. So that, some of that data can be on a blockchain. One final closing thought. This is really scary stuff. I was extremely intimidated when I first started learning about it. Don't be scared. It's so exciting. Go on YouTube. Read Blockchain Revolution by Don Tapscott. Go to meetups. Just start educating yourself and you will blink and it will be 20 years down the line and you'll thank yourself that you got into it when you did. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening all the way through. Please hit subscribe if you've not already done so and get excited for a few more Thrival-related interviews coming down the pipe. We've got Eva Masood of Terra.ai, an artificial intelligence that is going to transform the world of recruiting. Additionally, we have Mickey McManus of Maya the consulting group that is responsible for Pittsburgh's bid for the second Amazon 
headquarters. We talk about what goes into such a proposal and how he's gone about building a successful consulting firm. That and much, much more on future episodes of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.